I was just gonna say it's like <laughs> But it hasn't been long enough for me to make that joke. I can't do it that. It definitely has not, and I'm editing it out. <laughs> yes. Yes, you are. I I'm your friend. I care about you, and I'm editing that joke out. <laughs> <laughs> Which means it'll be the goddamn intro. (laughs) (laughs) I hate you so much. (laughs) Honestly, fair. (laughs) Oui, c'est vrai. Je suis un ananas. Now, in the uh, towers of uh, Edmonton. I'm not a Tory, I don't speak on both sides. I do not use crack cocaine, nor am I an addict of crack cocaine. and welcome back to Fat, French, and Fabulous. I'm Jessica. And I am a slightly more employed version of Janelle. Huzzah! You got a job! That's exciting. I did. I, I have money again. <laughs> back, nice. back in the halcyon <laughs> days of your I 20s, see, I guess? I don't know. I actually really like having a regular steady income, but... <laughs> Fancy that. Like... Well, the, the moment I got a job, my roommate just turned to me. He's like, you're going to be fascinating when you have money. <laughs> it's terrifying. <laughs> the first thing I did was blow $400 on sweater vests, bow ties, and a life-sized replica of a skull. <laughs> it was listed under home decor. I was going to say, I've seen you in New York City. You bought nine pairs of shoes and a terrifying articulated wooden hand. <laughs> <laughs> Not exactly an I Heart New York t-shirt. Yeah, which I then used to wave at all the cops. You did. You made many friends with the NYPD. <laughs> and you're very they lucky you didn't... End... Oh, they, they did all wave back. It's the only reason you're not in yeah. fucking Bellevue psych right now. <laughs> I think they're just used to this kind of thing. It's the city, man. It's the city. I've always found the police are a little more willing to humor me than the average security guard. Because the average security guard needs to feel alive, whereas the average yeah. policeman is tired. <laughs> They're just like, ah, I'm gonna let this one go. <laughs> they see you, and you just look like three hours of paperwork. <laughs> <laughs> You're pr- I'm probably not gonna be able to charge you with anything interesting, and you look difficult. <laughs> you, I mean, I work in mental health. I look at you, and I see paperwork. <laughs> You just have flashbacks to office time. <laughs> I see the weirdest goddamn intake of my career. <laughs> That's really all these this these fifty episodes have been. Just you doing an extremely like almost baroque intake examination. <laughs> the yeah. moment we hit a hundred episodes, you're gonna be taking me in. I I have done mental health intakes where people have confessed to murder, so that's a high bar, and you (laughs) sail over it. The Olympic pole vaulter that you are, propelled by a combination of mental illness and a rural upbringing. (laughs) All of my norms are fucked. (laughs) When people meet you and find out that they're homeschooled, they are never surprised. No, ever. There are people I've met, I will tell them that I have autism, and they're like, oh, is that what it is? Because it's something. People people meet me, and they're just searching for an explanation. 
oh, I've given up. I gave up long ago. (laughs) (laughs) So on our topic for today, we have our third part of Guy Burgess, your favorite gay communist spy and mine. Uh, one of the friends Burgess made at Westminster was a member was member of Parliament Hector McNeil of the Labour Party, a young Scottish politician who was a heavy drinker and smoker like Burgess himself. Ah, so he uh, was Scottish then. That's you don't need to say heavy drinker. It's it's implied. He, that that's a bona fide. That's a qualification that needs no verification. McNeil lacked the elite education of most of his colleagues, resulting in him feeling inadequate and ill at ease navigating the upper circles of the Oxbridge-educated British government. Oh, they were mean to him because he didn't go to Eton. That's basically just what a British childhood is. It's just telling people where you went to school and feeling unwarranted pride or shame. In late 1946, when McNeil was appointed Minister of State to the Foreign Office, he quickly appointed as his private secretary his good friend Guy Burgess, who had the contacts and insider understanding that he himself lacked. Uh, As secretary to a cabinet minister, Burgess had access to the most sensitive Foreign Office documents, took minutes at cabinet meetings, and gossiped with guests at the daily tea party in the ambassador's waiting room. So they they just handed this man more information and connections they were like hey you know what this guy with heavy communist leanings in college needs more government secrets that was that was the number one cure for communism back in the day was just unlimited unfettered access to every single secret of like secret of state that they could force into his open screaming mouth it's a horrifying baby bird analogy but i'll allow it (laughs) I was gonna barf ground up state secrets into your face. <laughs> it's like finding out that somebody spent their entire formative years texting ISIS operatives on WhatsApp, and then you just hand them government secrets. It's like making them ambassador to Syria and letting them sit in on confidential government meetings. If you're like a modern day person with like a ton of communist friends, as Janelle and I both are, that's very true. This may seem kind of odd to you. There's a difference in kind between your average modern communist and, like, the old school kind. Communism is a thing you get into now because you make $12 an hour and you just found out who Che Guevara is and you're 21 and you're angry. It's, it's just like, it's like a phase you go through. It's like chokers or butterfly clips. It's just like Picasso's blue period. It's your communist phase. Everybody has one. We all went to college. (laughs) It's the most upper middle class white thing you'll ever say. Oh, it absolutely is. Most of my family did not go to college. I'm an exception. (laughs) People just assume I'm upper middle class. (laughs) And they are very wrong. (laughs) They should remember that you're rural filth. I am the filthiest of rurals. (laughs) You weren't even homeschooled in a classroom. You just had class under a grain harvester. Just... <laughs> it's the best way to learn out in, in the, the field. In the front cab of a hay baler. <laughs> <That was> your... <laughs> Take a seat. Hope you don't have a hay allergy. <laughs> Which you absolutely do, you asthmatic little weirdo. I actually don't have a hay allergy. I'm just... Uh, I'm just allergic to erythromycin, which is an alternative to penicillin that you take if you're allergic to penicillin. Oh, I'm allergic to penicillin. Yeah. Look at us. We're such yeah. a pair. We oh, can... We're just Britain in the stars. <laughs> That's good. Now that we've recorded our weaknesses on a podcast. <laughs> Here's how to specifically poison us. Get both of us sick and then swap our meds. <laughs> <laughs> 
This is an elaborate plan. Burgess, uh, happily, even eagerly, did much of his boss's work for him, much to McNeil's gratitude. Unfortunately for Burgess's attempt to sway the labor government towards the Soviet Union, however, both McNeil and his direct supervisor, Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs Ernest Bevan, were strongly an- strong anti-communists who could only be persuaded so much on the issue. When applying for a more senior ranking, Burgess misrepresented his education to the Civil Service Commission, implying that he had taken a first rather than having been medically excused from his finals. Which is weird. Like, it's... You went to Cambridge or Oxford? I can't remember this He went to Cambridge. Yeah, he went to Cambridge. It's it's like going to Princeton and then lying and saying that you went to Brown for no reason. I actually have no intuitive understanding of the relative ranking of those colleges, you elite poser. (laughs) It's my turn to be an upper middle class white piece of shit. (laughs) <laughs> don't think you can hog all the glory even though i'm pretty sure you've plucked porcupine out of a dog's face <laughs> i have some of we have humble beginnings <laughs> we can only aspire to pretentiousness we're both insecure about the fact that we have master's degrees and our parents didn't finish university it's fine it's, it's fine <laughs> it's, it's fine. fine it's fine uh when the commission asked sd spring at the at BBC Talks, whether Burgess had been honest, sober, and generally well-conducted in his time there, he said yes, and so further described Burgess as keen, able, and resourceful. So and more lies. Definitely not a man who once drunkenly tried to break his own office door down with a fire extinguisher. <laughs> Seems like the kind of thing you might want to add in a reference letter. Yeah. That Just feels like a good P.S. <laughs> Burgess's Soviet contact from around this time, Yuri Modin, described Burgess as an ideological spy who believed a Marxist revolution was inevitable and the world's best hope was the Soviet Union, regardless of his reservations about the Soviet's foreign and domestic policy. Oh, so I, I don't feel good about their foreign or domestic policy, but I yeah. want them to take which is over both. the world. <laughs> which yeah, that is, is both, both that's, policies. That's both types of policy. That's all of it. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's it's weird. There's nothing else. It's like I don't I don't like their foreign or domestic policy, but that is a snazzy flag. So I'm in it. It's like if you're talking about your boyfriend, you're like it. he's unpleasant, unreliable, and unemployed. But I'm gonna marry that man. <laughs> like, like, <laughs> you know what? Sixteen year old Janelle resents that. Sixteen <laughs> <laughs> uh, year old Janelle made some life choices. Like, it's just, it's fascinating that he's like, I have reservations about all of their policy, and also I'd like them to rule the world. It's a little strange. It's a little strange. And it's like, it's kind of worse that he knew. If he'd been, like, completely taken in, if he'd been dumb. But no, he was well aware of the inherent problems here. It's like going to a restaurant, looking at a dish on the menu seeing that you hate everything in it and, and then further your deadly anyway. allergic and just getting it anyway like you went into this with full knowledge and also full steam ahead yeah you don't even have an EpiPen on you and you're just like fuck it shrimp it is <laughs> uh Moden said likewise of Burgess he was a naturally gifted analyst his reports were thoughtful layered and clear he was by then a great pro, despite his reputation as a disreputable, drunken, homosexual philanderer. The stress of this complex double life exacerbated Burgess's mental health issues, and he swung between frenzied activity and morose depression. He kept a flask of whiskey at his desk and ate sedatives and stimulants like candy. Mmm, Skittles. Sleepy Skittles. I'm just gonna get myself a Pez dispenser and fill it with barbiturates. Buckle up, kids. Daddy's taking his happy Skittles. <laughs> <laughs> 
He began dropping hints that he was thinking of perhaps settling down and starting a family, and that he may have found just the woman to marry. About which Garanwi Reese wrote, I think the lady in question would have been surprised and perhaps alarmed to know that she had been selected as Guy's intended victim. Oh, oh, oh my god. <laughs> so so this wasn't mutual. He just sees some woman across a crowded room and is like, that one, I must have her. I'm gonna marry that girl. <laughs> This isn't quite as odd as it may seem. Burgess did have several affairs with women, though he did lean strongly towards men. I, I can't decide if this is better or worse that he's gay. Does that make it more objectifying or less? He's just staring across the room and going like, well, you know, someday I'm going to need a beard and I can't grow one. Like, what? <laughs> what is, like, what is this to you? I was just thinking that. I'm like, what is what is the worst thing to hear from a man? Like... You, you're a hot piece of ass, or you'd make a very convincing beard. <laughs> yeah, he's not even thinking of her as a sexual conquest. He's thinking of her as a professional accessory. <laughs> like, She's cover. <laughs> uh, Burgess even had a close, often flirtatious relationship with Clarissa Churchill, niece to Winston Churchill, which was probably, definitely, most likely not an imp- expression of his deep, unquenchable thirst for her uncle. I'm I'm just picturing Winston Churchill in a dress. That's all I get. <laughs> Sitting there looking like a like a bulldog wearing a wearing a rope of pearls. <laughs> oh yeah, jowls stuffed into a lace collar. <laughs> um I'm under the impression she was quite pretty. Anyway, uh Churchill could be pretty. I mean, if when he felt like it. Burgess likewise began to talk of leaving the foreign office and claimed to have lost interest in politics, which struck his friends as odd, given that his personality was approximately 70% politics, 20% inappropriate drunkenness, and 10% trying gamely to seduce the entire male population of Europe. Reese, curious, asked Burgess if he had given up his activities on behalf of the Russians. Burgess refused to discuss the matter, leading Reese to claim that he had given a sealed written record of their conversation from 1939 to his lawyer. Burgess, seeming terrified, begged Reese to destroy it to avoid damage to his career at the Foreign Office, only strengthening Reese's suspicions. Refusing to discuss it is literally the most suspicious thing you can reply with. Just say no. Just lie. Say you've taken up macrame and you simply have no time for anything else. Like, just anything else. You're a spy and a traitor and you've been lying to everyone you've ever met for years. Just say no. <laughs> I I need to quit politics to focus on my autoerotic asphyxiation. Like, just yeah. come up with something. Don't act like you're not prepared for this. <laughs> you're a scatterbrained sex pest. People will believe you. <laughs> just say, oh yeah, no, I uh, gave up on it. Like, you don't... Just- full-time perving from here on mm, out. From from this point on, I'm just standing by the ducks, whistling at anything vaguely man-shaped. <laughs> a, a noble habit. I'm just walking into every YMCA, pulling my shorts down, and just helicoptering my dick until there's a, until I've got a line of takers. <laughs> oh, that's, that's an image I'll never get out. <laughs> With any amount of Bleacher tears? I believe this is how romance works. <laughs> your, your understanding of heterosexuality is as fascinating as it is terrifying. <laughs> uh, luckily for you, I'm probably never going to experiment. <laughs> the average man can't move his hips like that. You're going to be sorely disappointed. I mean, 
If he's not even going to put the effort into a bird of paradise-like display where he paints his dick blue and then whips it around for the entertainment of all, I, I don't know if he has the kind of dedication that I need in a partner. Every single time I picture this, the only sound going on in the background is a maniac. <laughs> <laughs> it's the perfect song. The Michael Cimbello song? <laughs> I don't think you can legally helicopter dick to any other soundtrack. If you if you are swinging your dick around, it doesn't matter what's going on in the background. It doesn't matter if it's Bach. It will become Maniac. <laughs> it's just one of those natural phenomenons we'll yeah. never understand. It's just nature. It's beautiful and mysterious. In 1948, Christopher Mayhew was in charge of setting up the Information Research Department, a section of the Foreign Office dedicated to a counteroffensive against Soviet propaganda and infiltration. He asked McNeil for somebody who knew more about communism than the communists, and of course, McNeil forwarded Guy Burgess. Mayhew, impressed by Burgess's brilliance, immediately hired him. Then, almost immediately, fired him. <laughs> Kicked him out of the department for being a lazy, careless drunk. <laughs> course, because Burgess was McNeil's protege, Burgess wasn't fired precisely, but rather just kicked back to his position in McNeil's office. Just go be an embarrassment somewhere else. <laughs> in November 1948, after the end of his contract as a private secretary, Burgess joined the Foreign Office's Far East Department, dealing primarily with correspondence regarding China and the Philippines, having failed to secure entry into the general American or northern departments. This gave him front row seats to the Chinese Revolution, and the last months of the civil war between the communists and the nationalists there. Within the small Far East Department, Burgess became the de facto political analyst for the Chinese Revolution due to his background in Marxism. It was likewise a prime position to gain intelligence on the divergent British and American positioning towards communist China and the lead up to the Korean War. This is kind of like appointing somebody to be the head of the police department based on the fact that they've murdered someone. You know, maybe you should be a chef. You're very good with knives. In February 1949, Burgess fell down two flights of stairs leaving a nightclub, resulting in a broken elbow, three dislocated ribs, and a head injury, forcing him into the care of his mother. A couple weeks later, Burgess was charged with drunk and restless driving. The case dismissed after Burgess claimed that he had been unable to drink on doctor's orders regarding said head injury, with the backing of witness testimony. That is the most trusting excuse ever. Oh no, the doctor said I couldn't drink, so obviously I wasn't drinking. Holy shit. Before they had breathalyzers, I don't know if a cop eyeballing it was really a good standard of evidence. <laughs> they went on the I'm rich and white, why would I lie system. Following the fall, Burgess suffered from headaches and insomnia, which he treated with large doses of Nembutal to put himself to sleep and Benzedrine to wake himself up, which he acquired from the sister of a former lover who happened to be a vet. Turn your body into a veterinary drug cocktail. That, there's no way that has some unexpected long-term consequences. Cup of coffee in the morning not getting you up? Not enough to start your day? Have you ever considered dog meth? <laughs> <laughs> If it's good enough to get a German shepherd out of general anesthesia, it's good enough for you. <laughs> In late 1949, Burgess was brought into the Foreign Office's personnel department, where he was confronted for his drunken misbehavior and flagrant indiscretion during a recent trip to Gibraltar, as well as accused of passing sensitive information to an American journalist with links to Soviet intelligence, Freddie Koo. Friends within the intelligence service, such as fellow apostle Guy Little, protected Burgess from disciplinary action. 
Little claimed that any intelligence gained by Ku must have been obtained through manipulation on the part of Ku and naive enthusiasm for one of his favorite subjects on the part of Burgess. Little further dismissed reports of Burgess's drunken misbehavior as a malicious smear, given that Burgess had got on the wagon following a warning from a doctor. So, in Guy Burgess's world, my doctor says I can't drink gets you out of a DUI, and I'm dumb and enthusiastic gets you out of treason. Yeah, it's like, like, that doesn't exonerate you. That probably means that you're not guilty of criminal culpability. Like, if that is true... That's not good. (laughs) It means people should stop shoveling secrets into you like you're a coal-burning stove. Even if you were not intentionally leaking secrets and, like, there was no malice involved, you're over 30, you've been in the public service most of your adult life, if you don't know better by this point, you shouldn't be trusted. I am 100% pro firing people who can't, don't have the basic competence not to leak state secrets to anyone who asks. If somebody with a heavy Russian accent calls you up and asks you to fax over Canadian troop locations, I'm, I'm gonna hope you have the wherewithal to say you know, no. Listen to those, those anti-drug PSAs from the 90s and just say no. <laughs> like, there shouldn't have to be a dare for treason. <laughs> Oh, but the PSAs would be marvelous. Oh, they'd be so good. I just want a whole bunch of puppets to tell me why leaking secrets to the Soviets is wrong. (laughs) This is your brain on treason, is there waterboarding an egg? (laughs) (laughs) In early February 1950, German physicist Klaus Fuchs was arrested for passing nuclear secrets to the Soviet Union. This shook Burgess because Philby had tipped him off that the Soviet communications deciphered by the American Venona Project was getting close to Fuchs months before. Burgess had utterly forgotten to pass that information onto the Soviets. The only thing that's got me shook here is the fact that this man is named Klaus Fuchs. (laughs) It's spelled F-U-C-H-S, but I can't help but say, that guy? That guy, Fuchs. (laughs) Klaus definitely fucks. <laughs> it's like that one uh, that one poor city in Austria. I think it's pronounced Fox or something, but it looks like fucks. <laughs> fucks Austria. Yeah, f- so fuck Austria uh, just keeps getting their signs stolen by British tourists. <laughs> now I kind of want to go to fucks and steal the sign. <laughs> I feel no pity. I feel envy for people who have that yeah. sign. There are people out there who have a real genuine sign from fuck Austria, and I'm not one of them. <laughs> I need a plane ticket and some bolt cutters. Let's do this. <laughs> While we're there, we, we can swing by the Swedish goat festival. I was just going to ask if we can burn down the Yule goat. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, it's your All dream, Janelle. <laughs> in this life is to burn down the Yule goat. You know, fame, fortune, whatever. I want to burn down a 50-foot wooden goat. It's my pinned tweet, and I've had numerous people message me to ask about it. And I've converted (laughs) pretty much all of them to a desire to burn down a large, innocent Swedish Yule goat. The Swedes get so upset when people do that. I want to ruin a Swedish Christmas. There's like that one poor American tourist who burnt down the Yule Goat because he genuinely thought it was a tradition. (laughs) I want to be the Grinch of arson. (laughs) 
Fuchs' trial was extremely stressful for the Cambridge Ring. Blunt stopped coming to meetings with his Soviet handlers. McLean <laughs> suffered a nervous breakdown and drunkenly wrecked the apartment of a young American embassy staffer in Cairo. And on June 4th, Burgess spent six and a half hours in a public park with one of his Soviet handlers, dredging through his concerns about being exposed by Venona or betrayed by Reese. He likewise appeared to be having money troubles despite his more than reasonable incomes, personal, professional, and Soviet. One evening at the Reform Club, a Mr. Richard Levin reports that during a conversation with two high court judges over I Chose Freedom by Soviet defector Viktor Kravchenko, Burgess stopped by, drunkenly lectured them about how terrible Americans were, then chucked the book off the balcony. Megan friends. That summer, Burgess was posted to the Washington Embassy, a proposition neither Burgess nor the Embassy much cared for. Burgess, due to his strong anti-American sentiments and reluctance to leave Britain, and the Washington Bureau because they thought Burgess disruptive and filthy. It was thought that placing Burgess in a larger office would mean he would be easier to monitor and control, and so neither had much choice in the matter. Yeah, you know what'll make an alcoholic, a mentally ill alcoholic, more functional? Moving him to a foreign country. Yeah, moving him to a foreign country where against he Against his will. Against his will, where he no longer has the same kind of social infrastructure <laughs> and will have more scrutiny of his behavior. <laughs> oh yeah, he'll, he'll level right out. In Washington, Burgess made a general nuisance of himself. It's rather difficult to figure out exactly what his duties were, as it doesn't appear he was truly trusted with a regular portfolio, though he certainly had access to a lot of sensitive documents, which he was re repeatedly reprimanded for handling poorly. He likewise shared a mutual enmity with the ambassador, and wound up repeatedly demoted. Uh, in Washington, Burgess stayed with Kim Philby, whose wife he terrorized, and whose children he delighted. <laughs> Funny how that works. It turns out the exact same qualities that will endear you to a 10-year-old will cause a 30-something mother to drink herself half to death with sherry in the kitchen. Burgess bought a 1941 Lincoln Continental, which he parked basically anywhere he pleased on embassy grounds. Like a fucking badass. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't- I'm not part of your system. And it's just like, cool. Could you just not park on the sidewalk? <laughs> I also like that he goes out and buys himself the most American car available. It's a Lincoln. It's a Lincoln. What next, a Cadillac? He liked to drive his Lincoln Continental around the countryside, rarely dipping below 85 miles per hour, or th around 300, uh, 135 kilometers per hour if you live outside of the United States. I was going to say, I'm not real good at math, but I know that's not 300 kilometers an hour. That is drag racing speed. <laughs> Don't mock me. I have trouble with numbers. I'm just picturing him achieving liftoff <laughs> in a Lincoln Continental. <laughs> Trunk. <laughs> I, will, I will leave this earth behind. <laughs> You're just trying to enjoy a peaceful night out in Washington, D.C. and a Lincoln Continental just soars overhead. <laughs> Narrowly misses you. Engine exhaust and loose embassy documents fluttering to the ground behind it. <laughs> like the car from Harry Potter. <laughs> Fueled by treason instead of magic. Burgess made frequent trips to New York City, ostensibly to visit old friends and pick up young men in the Turkish baths, but also as a courier on behalf of Philby to their Soviet contact in America. Despite the diversions of Turkish baths and speeding around the countryside terrifying fresh-faced apple pie America, 
Burgess was miserable in Washington, and it contributed to his already heavy drinking. That drinking itself worsened Burgess's developing diabetes, leading to frequent blackouts. Yeah, because again, what what levels off an alcoholic more like unfamiliar surroundings where their life partner isn't there to keep an eye on them? Yeah, it's not like he, as a homosexual, can actually bring the one point of stability in his life with him. <laughs> he doesn't Which have I a mean... spousal allowance. Jack Hewitt still deserved better. He did. He he deserved better than being a grown man's babysitter. <laughs> Amen to that. <laughs> and I think that's a I think that's wisdom we can all take. <laughs> this is the weird niche hill I will die on. Jack Hewitt deserved <laughs> better. And you know you know what really improves an unstable man with a drinking problem? Passing out due to diabetes. <laughs> Oh, he's diabetic. Yeah, he's developing diabetes at this time. Um, oh, good. Yeah. So he's gonna die. So, yeah, it's like, not only are you having alcohol-related blackouts, you're also now having candy-related blackouts. And... <laughs> are you delusional because you're drunk or because your blood sugar's off the chart? I don't know, we'll see yeah. if you sober up or die. <laughs> Either you'll wake up fresh-faced in the morning with a bit of a hangover, or you'll drop into a coma. <laughs> Could be fun. On January 19th, 1951, the Philbys had several important members of the FBI, the CIA, and their wives over for a dinner party, which Burgess interrupted when he arrived around 9.30pm. After being introduced- Rude. He commented to one of the guests, Mrs. Libby Harvey, a lovely woman with a somewhat prominent jaw- that it was strange to see the face he had been doodling all his life suddenly appear to him. How prominent is your jaw that it makes it into the historical record? Oh, you're gonna find out in 30 seconds. Oh, good. She, rather unwisely, asked him to draw her. Oh, no. And he caricatured her face to look like the prow of a dreadnought. No, taking the term hatchet-faced bitch to whole new heights. <laughs> Burgess absolutely was that bitch. <laughs> Fuck. The Harveys left in a fury, in particular William Harvey, responsible for anti-Soviet counterintelligence at the CIA, saw the insult as an expression of aristocratic contempt for him and his wife. Yeah, it turns out all of this, uh... All the government's expensive armies and the military and all these high-ranking generals just pale in comparison to some fucking drunk being rude at a dinner party. <laughs> There's, there, like, it's just, he's gotten away with this so long. And if he could just, for one moment, control himself as a dinner party. Oh, if this man had been sober and in full control of his faculties, he would have taken over the goddamn world. Oh, like, we were still being ruled by Emperor for Eternity, Immortal Guy Burgess. <laughs> but instead, he's he's just a drunken halfwit. Someone being this smart and this incompetent is infuriating. <laughs> it's It was the only way the rest of us stood a goddamn chance. He's got, like, a three-shot handicap. It's, it's good. <laughs> American intelligence was far from unaware of the extent of Soviet infiltration. The Venona Project had revealed over 200 Americans were working as Soviet agents, with many embedded in the Treasury, the State Department, the Manhattan Project, and the Intelligence Service itself. Because everyone's bad at background checks at this point. They're just Everyone. Like, Are you a spy? 
and you go no, no. and then you get a job that's that's background checks in they, the give 1940s. You a, they give you a fond slap on the ass and secret clearance i mean it is the 1940s i'm sure a slap on the ass is all part of it standard procedure off you go the CIA discovered that in 1945, there had been a Soviet agent passing secrets out of the Washington Embassy, including information on the atomic program. This yet unidentified agent was codenamed by the Russians Homer. A decrypted message from June 1944 then narrowed the list of suspects to just two men, Paul Gore Booth and Donald McLean. Burgess, despite not being in any way suspected of espionage, was placed under police surveillance by the vice squad of the Washington Metropolitan Police on account of the whole cruising bars and public toilets for anonymous homosexual encounters with strangers thing, resulting in reports that he had been seen in the company of the Russians at the old Balalaika restaurant downtown. Scandalous. As those familiar with the American Cold War are probably thinking, this is all smack dab in the middle of the second Red Scare and Senator Joseph McCarthy's campaign to whip the American public into a full-blown anti-communist hysteria. Yeah, maybe if you're a goddamn nerd. (laughs) Admittedly, probably not the average person was going like, hey, wait a second, isn't this the time of the pink purges? But just pushing up their glasses and consulting the timeline they've painted on their wall. Obvi. I mean, in this case, it's 100% warranted he's absolutely passing government secrets to the Russians in an attempt to overthrow the Americans. Like, the average homosexual individual in the public service was not passing on information to the Russians, but Burgess certainly was, and he often drove himself into fits of rage over McCarthy's insistence on a link between communism and homosexuality. I suspect because he took it a tad personally. (laughs) This is one thing I do like, though, is that, like, the McCarthy raids snapped up all kinds of people who had absolutely nothing to do with communism. Nothing. Celebrities, artists, all these kinds of people. In the meantime, they have this drunk man actively photocopying documents in a back room. Yeah. In between photocopying his ass. The Russians. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Just being as suspicious as possible, and they're like, hmm, no, Elvis is the communist. You just have Burgess just, like, walking down the street, making it rain with classified documents. <laughs> Meanwhile, any woman with a butch haircut was out on her ass. <laughs> April 1951, Burgess was suspended and ordered recalled to London for an incident on a trip to give a speech in Charleston. Burgess was caught driving 90 miles per hour through Virginia, 145 kilometers per hour if listeners outside the U.S. would like to be equally upset. Oh, that's too many kilometers per hour. That's that's faster than I've ever driven. That is, I'm very glad to hear that, but that is... (laughs) That is that is not faster than my mother has ever driven through winding Ontario back highways at two <laughs> o'clock in the morning in the fog in a moose zone. It's amazing <laughs> that I'm alive and that this isn't just Jessica eulogizing me in an ongoing podcast. <laughs> just me hallucinating in my room, talking to the friend I never met. <laughs> oh no, this was recent. Oh no. We'd, we'd already started the podcast by the time I got whipped through fucking moose country like I was on a goddamn minivan roller coaster. <laughs> <laughs> See, it's funny. I took defensive driving in rural Alberta, and the thing they teach you, if you don't have space to stop, and an animal crosses into the road, you should just hit them. Unless yeah. it's a moose, in which case, take your chances with the ditch. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, if you've got a choice between tree or moose. I was literally taught that in a situation where I might end up tangled with a moose in a wreckage on the highway, I should just try to drive into a tree instead. <laughs> oh yeah, I would I would take the warm embrace of an oak tree before I would take a goddamn moose. This is like like a half ton megafauna. Just 500 pounds of large confused animal that you're not so much hitting as sweeping out at the knees. <laughs> <laughs> That's just it. You've you've been in the worst car accident of your life, and now there is an angry moose on top of you that you've got to fight. There is now a moose on your hood with four broken legs and possibly a concussion, like that doesn't understand what's happening and desperately wants to escape. <laughs> because incidentally, this is why you should not drive ninety miles an hour anywhere on the eastern seaboard. Because mm-hmm. if you hit a moose at 90 miles an hour, you're not kneecapping it so much as you're make- encouraging it to do a barrel roll <laughs> over your car. Yeah, it's going to be in the passenger seat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, half of it, the rest of it's in the trunk. <laughs> it's a lot of animal. You're going to get squished out of your broken car like a tube of meat toothpaste. <laughs> <laughs> they may be herbivores. But they will try to eat you. <laughs> <laughs> Look, they're gonna have to bury you with the moose, because they're not gonna know which bits are you and which bits are angry fauna. You're gonna be sent back in a th- in a in a thousand pound coffin <laughs> with 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 a funny bump in it to make space for the antlers. <laughs> <laughs> claimed diplomatic immunity and was left off with a warning. That's bold. 60 miles down the road, he was stopped again for driving 80 miles per hour, trying to pass an entire army convoy. I like that he gets arrested and he doesn't even slow down. I mean, he was going 10 miles per hour less. (laughs) Oh, great. When you hit a tree, you'll be paced instead of (laughs) missed. be smear instead of an aerosol. I mean, something. <laughs> I don't even know if he's wearing a seatbelt. <laughs> Probably not. Probably not. I don't think I don't think alcoholic drunk drivers are real big on that. Not in the 50s. This was a seatbelt optional time at the best of times. This is not a man with a lot of concern for consequence. No. After stopping for minor repairs and a few beers over lunch in Richmond, Burgess responsibly question mark handled, handed the wheel over to his passenger, a black drifter in his late twenties named James Turk. They were stopped a third time in South Carolina, where the patrolman was skeptical of the idea that a diplomat's chauffeur was protected under diplomatic immunity. They didn't. Sus- they didn't find it suspicious that his that his chauffeur is a random drifter he barely knows. I mean, this is South Carolina, and they have certain attitudes towards black people. I was gonna say, whatever's coming out of your mouth next is just racism. Which might be why Turk was arrested. Oh no. Oh, <laughs> now you've gotten a innocent drifter man arrested. Yeah, that drifter did nothing wrong. That drifter deserved better. <laughs> <laughs> Bail was set at $55, which Burgess paid after finding somewhere in St. Petersburg willing to cash a check, and the two set off once more. 
What truly came back to bite Burgess was an affidavit given by Turk that this was actually the third traffic offense of the day, and that Burgess had explicitly encouraged him to speed. Following the recall order, Burgess traveled to Britain in early May, spending most of the five-day Atlantic voyage drinking. On May 7th, he met with Blunt, passing on Philby's information on the Homer investigation and discussing the plan to exfiltrate McLean. The next day, Burgess met with Yuri Moden, then paid a visit to Garanwi Reese, who thought that Burgess looked better than he had in years. Happy, healthy, with a press suit and reasonably cleaned fingernails. But that he also seemed to be under some kind of intense internal pressure. At one point during the visit, he began talking about his apprehensions about American foreign policy and McCarthyism, and about his intentions to show an analysis of the American political position the ambassador had forbidden him to send to London to the ex-Minister of State for Foreign Affairs. To quote Reese, I suddenly had the slightly queasy feeling that I was talking to a lunatic. It's amazing how long it took people to come to that conclusion. It's like, I'd respect that more if you'd figured this out about a decade ago. <laughs> You've had so many opportunities. He's This is not a recent development. He's been unhinged since college. <laughs> he was unhinged when he met you. It's like finding out that the president of like your college's My Little Pony fan club is slightly off. The signs were there. On May 9th, Burgess reported it to the personnel department at the foreign office, where he was asked to consider resigning, implicitly to save himself the embarrassment of a formal dismissal. That evening, he went to the home he had shared with Jack Hewitt on New Bond Street. According to Hewitt, Burgess seemed healthy and younger than when he had left, charming as ever and clearly excited to be in London again. When unpacking Burgess's luggage, Hewitt discovered a thick package of banknotes, which Burgess claimed to have brought from America for a friend. Oh, you know, like one does. Just carry large bricks of cash for your friends. Hewitt, used to finding large amounts of unexplained money around Burgess, didn't pursue the conversation much further. Several acquaintances of Burgess encountered him during this period and found him aggressive and foreboding, always talking about the shadow of war and his hatred for the Americans. Look, I'm never going to, like, advocate for going through your significant other stuff. No. But if you do go through your significant other stuff, and there's just large amounts of unmarked yeah. bills they can't explain, you're dating a spy or a drug dealer. Or a stripper, if the bills are slightly sticky. <laughs> those are those are the options. <laughs> I'd, I'd almost prefer to go through my boyfriend's luggage and find another woman's panties rather than just bricks of cash he can't explain. Yeah, because you're not likely to be swept up in a police investigation if he's cheating on you. <laughs> yeah, right? Like, <laughs> like, you're not likely to get a call from the NSA <laughs> if he's just, if he just has a side piece. <laughs> the only thing I want out of a relationship is a man who can cook his own food and won't get me in trouble with Interpol. <laughs> you ask for so little. I, I'm, a, I'm a reasonable woman. <laughs> Even if they're not yours, why does your friend need them? And why are you doing them this favor? There's no unsuspicious reason why your friend would need them either. Yeah, it's it's like pulling a pickaxe covered in blood and hair out of your bag and being like, Oh, no, 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 this isn't suspicious. It's this for is my friend. friend. <sighs> yeah, that, that in no way clears up anything. Yeah, that that's not better. That's not okay. <clears throat> <laughs> no. No, it's not. Uh, MI5 had a tail on Donald McLean, two easily identifiable officers who followed him around rather obviously, though it is difficult to tell whether this was an intentional intimidation tactic or merely incompetence. 
Burgess immediately contacted McLean during, after returning from Washington, as caught by MI5 intercept on McLean's telephone communications, and Burgess met with him frequently thereafter, earning Burgess his own MI5 surveillance. Honestly, that's the question that runs through this whole thing, is like, alright, was this an intentional tactic, or are you just bad at your job? <laughs> and it's a question I've had about everybody mentioned thus far. Yeah, there's nobody where I'm like, your actions feel intentional, it's like, this feels like the random chaos of a child's kaleidoscope thrown at a drunk man. <laughs> That's quite the analogy that you just had in your head there. Sometimes I just say things. I've noticed. <laughs> McLean was initially reluctant to defect, in no small part because his wife was currently pregnant with their third child. He claimed that he couldn't make the trip alone, and the Soviets, knowing that if McLean were taken into custody, he would likely tell everything he knew, ordered Burgess to take the first leg of the journey with him. MI5 delayed bringing McLean in for questioning, as MI5 head Sir Percy Sillitoe, excellent name, wanted to excellent keep the name. FBI informed. <laughs> Sir Percy Sillitoe. <laughs> Sillitoe is such a good name. Such a good name. I can't believe that that man existed. Just... How come that more effort wasn't taken to preserve these last names? Like... Like, Silly Toe should be in every fucking phone book in America. Absolutely. We should just all change our names as one to Sir Percy Silly Toe. <laughs> Does anyone really have a better last name than that? I don't, I don't think so. Like, I'm pretty fond of Peugeot, despite the fact people keep calling me Pigeon. But, like, if I could be Sir Percy Silly Toe, I, I'm pulling the trigger. I'm that's who I was always meant to be. I identify as Sir, P Sir Percy Sillytoe, and I expect to have my own bathroom. It sounds like something you would invent as a parody of British people. Just, it does. It feels like a character from, from Blackadder. It, it feels like this is from a Monty Python sketch. Yeah, it, it feels like the main character from a Black Mirror episode written by a guest writer who's never been to England. On May 24th, the full details of the plan to arrest and interrogate McLean were faxed to Kim Philby in Washington, specifically planning to interview McLean the next week, most likely Monday the 28th. Because, you know, you don't want to move too quickly with mm. national security at stake. Absolutely not. Especially not when you suspect that the Washington Embassy has been tainted. Oh, my schedule this week is just so full, I just couldn't. The same day, Burgess visited his childhood home, which he hadn't seen since his mother moved out a decade before. That evening, Hewitt came home too late to overhear Burgess holding a loud argument in French with a speaker who answered likewise in French, but was clearly neither English nor French. That's not suspicious at all. Burgess spent the morning of the 25th calling old friends, including Margie Reese, who assumed he was under the influence of either drugs or alcohol, and told her that he was about to do something which would surprise and shock many people, but he was sure it was the right thing to do. He continued that he wouldn't see them again for some time, but Garanwi would understand. In fact, he was the only one of Burgess's friends who would. It, uh... Yeah, yeah. It, it just sounds like he's gearing up to kill himself. Kinda, yeah, it, it, sounds, it sounds like he's going to be found by a fishing boat the next week. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've worked in suicide prevention for many years. If you visit your childhood home, have a strange argument in French with someone who doesn't really speak French, and then call all your friends to say that someday the world will understand, you're getting some referrals. Like, and even people talking about, like, oh, he seemed like he was happier than he'd been in years. Like, also not a good sign. Yeah, no, I mean, we don't give useful mental health advice in this podcast for obvious reasons. But, uh, 
A very depressed person perking up after a long period of low mood is actually a huge warning sign that they're about to harm themselves. It's a bit of a red flag. If you know a deeply depressed person who stops talking about the future in any meaningful ways and seems to be settling all their affairs, uh, call somebody. (laughs) I mean, if if he starts giving away his possessions, then he's pretty much going to hit like a grand slam of suicide warning signs. Oh, he he actually, when he visited Granwe Reese, uh, he gave him several presents. (laughs) Yeah, that's not good. No, not at all. That same morning, the Foreign Secretary approved suggesting to the Americans that they should schedule an interrogation of McLean in June while his wife was in the hospital for her planned cesarean. One, that seems cold. Yeah. Too manipulative. No rush. We can wait. This can wait till June. Let's wait to make sure he misses the birth of his child. (laughs) Let's specifically hold him back in a moment of extreme duress. McLean was on several watch lists, making plane and, tr- plane and train travel impossible without false documents that would have taken too long to produce. Instead, Burgess booked a two-berth cabin to St. Malo, France that weekend for himself and a Bernard Miller, who Burgess had told Hewitt was the homosexual owner of an off-Broadway theater, but who was actually a heterosexual med student doing some semester at the University of Geneva, who was very confused when MI5 later wanted to talk to him. That is the... The cover is so much more conspicuous than the truth. <laughs> it's so... Like, if you were playing a D&D campaign and you rolled that, they should be required by law to ask you if you want to try again. Alright, so your real story is that you're just kind of some random student bumming around Europe for the summer. So we're gonna tell everybody that you are a homosexual, off-Broadway theater owner. <laughs> They'll never see it coming. They won't suspect a thing? Like, <laughs> what? These sorts of cruises were normally frequented by of- officials and businessmen with their mistresses, and they traveled without passport checks and stopped unofficially in French ports. Oh, so all aboard the cheatmobile. Burgess rented a car, saw Blunt, and then headed to the Reform Club for lunch and met poor Bernard Miller, who had who had come to London on the promise of an introduction of a, to a friend of Burgess's who was a doctor at a hospital there. At the club, he made an ex- Burgess made extravagant references to his plans to visit either the Lake District in northwest L- England or Scotland. After making several purchases alongside Miller, including a suitcase, Burgess returned to the flat he shared with Hewitt to pack. Uh, shortly before p- 6 p.m., Burgess drove to the home of Donald McLean. There he was introduced as Roger Stiles for the sake of the MI5 bugs, incidentally a name taken from the works of Agatha Christie. They're, they're just so bad at cover stories. <laughs> they're like, ah, it is my good friend, Mr. Darcy. And my lovely acqu- new acquaintance, Hercule Pierrot. <laughs> like, just just pick a name... And a cover story that's not insane. Yeah, just pull something out of the air. Richard Smith, there you go. <laughs> done. 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 No one's gonna ask questions. They had dinner, then told McLean's wife, Melinda, that they needed to go to meet a man in Andover. They left around 9pm and drove in turns until they reached a dock in Southampton, where they abandoned the car and boarded the boat as it disembarked. An immigration official recognized McLean and immediately informed MI5, but the French police were not immediately informed due to the risk of a leak. MI5 had no warrant for either man, nor grounds for such, and couldn't fully explain the matter for obvious reasons. 
McLean and Burgess disembarked at, in St. Mallow the next morning, leaving their luggage behind, taking a taxi to Wren, and never returning. So they basically just let them go. They disappeared into the night, and the response was delayed enough that by the time they responded, there was no trail left. On Sunday evening, Garanwi Reese returned home and learned of Burgess's call with his wife. His immediate response, verbatim, For God's sake, Guy's gone to Moscow, we must tell someone. Which I'm sure they'll, they'll do next Tuesday when they have a moment. <laughs> Reese called David Footman of M- MI6, who then alerted Guy Little of MI5. Reese likewise called, then met with Blunt, asking for advice. Blunt attempted unsuccessfully to dissuade Reese from his belief that Burgess was a Soviet agent and his intent to alert the authorities, too late as Reese already had. Monday, Melissa McLean called the American desk of the Foreign Office asking after her husband, then placed another call in the afternoon to George Carey Foster, the Foreign Office's chief of security, and reported that Donald had left with a colleague named Roger Stiles on the Friday evening. This, of course, was an utter hoax albeit a successful one. Melinda McLean knew Burgess and had known about her husband's espionage activities for their entire marriage. She and her children would later join him in the Soviet Union after the death of Stalin and consequent opening of Soviet society in 1953. This is is a cover story marriage between a random woman and a gay Soviet spy. And it's still a healthier relationship than my parents' marriage. <laughs> I don't think I'm Donald a little Mc- salty. Little salty about that. I don't think Donald McLean was a gay so like was gay. I I, I think he was the uh, the uh, the singer from um, that did American Pie. I don't think either of those are accurate. <laughs> <laughs> is is that what is that what he was? crying about at the levee was it was it the downfall of the soviet union is that what that song is about <laughs> the entire it was all just code see they're gonna be doing a dead drop down at the levee and the code is the levee is dry <laughs> them good old boys are drinking whiskey and why risky risky and why wow <laughs> it's one thirty uh, in the morning and that's the kind of response that gets you shot as an obvious obvious plant you're clearly either you're not devoted enough to the to the Soviet cause to memorize your lines properly, or you're a, you're an agent provocateur and they're taking you out. You're too sober to be here. <laughs> <laughs> two caps two caps to the back of the head for being too coherent. <laughs> Monday evening, Jack Hewitt returned from work, expecting to see Burgess, but he determined that Burgess obviously hadn't been back because the apartment was still clean. I love that that is an indication of whether or not he's been to the apartment. Absolutely. Like, there, he clearly hasn't been home. There's no shit on the ceiling. <laughs> right? There's not garbage in a snail trail all through the house. Clearly, he's not been here. Like, what kind of goddamn animal is this man? <laughs> Nobody's pissed on the pillows, so clearly he's he's not here yet. <laughs> Jack, he would deserve better. This was, like, at a certain point, I'm like, Jackie boy, you don't know your own worth. He's he's just a human garbage disposal, leaving chewed up fucking everything in his wake. You need a man who's not gonna leave herring bones on the bedside table. Right? Is this, is this a boyfriend or a feral cat that you've adopted? At a certain point, you just have to accept that it's gonna scratch you every time you try to pet it. 
And you're gonna get some kind of disease. My only goal in this life is to date a man whose presence is not immediately obvious by whether or not the building is fucking standing. (laughs) I don't want to be able to smell that he's been there three hours later. My only goal in life is to invent a time machine, go back to the 1930s, and convince Jack Hewitt that he should raise his standards. (laughs) Just to... um Just to a man who's not an active biohazard. Shack up with someone who doesn't come home and immediately kick over the compost bin. (laughs) Get yourself a man who doesn't immediately throw up in the sink and then just not bother to wash it down. (laughs) Standards, people. Standards. Just respect yourself. Fuck. At 9pm, Hewitt called the Reese resident and spoke to Margie Reese, who hadn't spoke to Burgess since Friday morning. He then called Blunt and asked if Burgess had mentioned going to Paris or anywhere else. Hewitt considered calling the Green Park Hotel to ask after Bernard Miller, which Blunt advised against. When Hewitt insisted, Blunt was silent for some time, then instructed Hewitt again not to call Miller and to let him know if Burgess returned. Otherwise, Blunt would call him at work the next day. To quote, don't worry, and please do as I say. Dun, dun, dun. Tuesday, Blunt called Hewitt, requesting they meet ASAP. Blunt picked up Hewitt from his office and requested his apartment key. Blunt told Hewitt to keep a low profile and stay with friends, then searched the new Bond apartment for any incriminating evidence, removing all that he found. He then passed the key on to MI5, saving them the need for a search warrant. Blunt then uh, assisted MI5 with a second search, which nonetheless found a thick bundle of love letters in a guitar case, kept both out of sentimentality and as potential blackmail materials, and 25 pages of sensitive documents from the British Treasury, all written by John Cairncross. Cairncross was placed under surveillance, and a tap on his phone discovered a request to meet a Soviet embassy official in a wood in Surrey to discuss Burgess and McLean. During the official search, Blunt stumbled across and pocketed a letter from Philby instructing Burgess to contact Zionist Flora Solomon if he ever needed help, as she was aware of Philby's double life. Later, on his deathbed, Blunt claimed an accomplice in the first search, Garanwi Reese. Dun, dun, dun. After hearing of Burgess's disappearance, Philby, who was obviously close to Burgess and one of the few people looped in on the Homer investigation, filled the suitcase with potentially incriminating espionage paraphernalia, drove out of Washington, D.C., and buried it in the woods around Great Falls National Park. I like that they can't, like... Like a treasonous dog. Yeah, they can't burn it. They can't. That would be suspicious. Let's just... Too easy. Let's just drive to the woods. <laughs> Yeah, in an era where people still heat their homes with fires. No, no, no. Let's make a midnight drive to the woods with a shovel. (laughs) An extensive search by British intelligence was unable to locate McLean and Burgess in Europe, despite the assistance of of French counterintelligence and the French police. Finally, a French official let let slip information on the manhunt to a journalist, and on Thursday, June 7th, it went public that two diplomats from the British Foreign Office were missing. The subsequent release of Burgess and McLean's names resulted in the McLean family and the unknown acquaintances of both being hounded by the media, including bribing the Reese children with chocolates and coins for fanciful stories. Oh, that's that's peak journalistic ethics. So good. British media never changed, but change immediately, actually. No, don't, don't, Please don't stop. bribe small children with candy for lies. 
On June 8th, Burgess's mother received a telegram marked Rome. Terribly sorry for my silence. Am embarking on a long Mediterranean holiday. Do forgive. Guy. McLean's wife and mother likewise received telegrams signed Tino, apparently a childhood nickname of Donald McLean. And they read, I definitely did not defect to Russia. <laughs> Burgess and McLean were the subject of a vast and at times hysterical manhunt throughout Europe, including a deluge of tips recording questionable, even fantastic sightings of the two men, as well as several false arrests one involving two Irish priests on a holiday in British Guiana. Over the next two years, the case of the two missing diplomats captured the public imagination. But notably, they had no idea of the strong suspicion in the intelligence community that the two had been Soviet spies. American intelligence now had been thrice burned by British intelligence's poor vetting. First British physicist Alan Nunn May, then German physicist and emigre to Britain Klaus Fuchs, and now Burgess and McLean. They were furious, in particular because McLean had been granted unescorted access to the headquarters of the Atomic Energy Commission and attended highly sensitive meetings regarding the Korean War. Disclosures from British to American intelligence following the Burgess-McLean debacle revealed just how much the British had been withholding and deeply fractured trust between the two countries. Because of the deeply embarrassing nature of the incident, trust between the various parts of the U.S. St United States intelligence was shaky, with the CIA, FBI, and State Department all withholding information from one another in order to protect themselves from public exposure. The British government ordered an inquiry into the in entire Foreign Office, whose own intercollegial trust was deeply shaken. In response to the House of Commons' questions about the process for vetting Burgess, MI5 misrepresented Burgess as a sort of contractor rather than a former employee. Oh, kind of like when Edward Snowden did the thing, and they were like, ah, mm. he was but a lowly contractor. And then they made a movie, and they were like, Snowden? No. Who dat? She cute? <laughs> yes, Jessica, that's exactly how that scandal went down. <laughs> I'm hip. I'm with it. I, I understand politics. Alongside new suspicions of espionage, Philby's conduct in the Folkov matter took on a sinister tone. No direct evidence could be found connecting Philby to any kind of espionage, but there were too many coincidences to be trusted. Philby was dismissed with a severance package of £4,000 in lieu of his expected pension, about £130 in modern terms. It was not until January 1963, when the case against him was far more developed, that Philby himself defected to the USSR. I like that the punishment for treason is a severance package? A golden parachute? Yeah. <laughs> Admittedly, they couldn't prove it. They just strongly suspected. All you gotta do to get a sweet, sweet severance pay, I guess, is to be so sketchy that they're pretty sure they can't trust you, but make sure they can't prove shit. Mm -hmm. Make them buy you out for their own safety. <laughs> Just be obviously but unprovably criminal. <laughs> it's not racketeering if you're drunk the whole time. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that they said that in, in law school. I'm pretty sure that's. What I they don't teach think you. that's 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 not legal advice. Well, please God, <laughs> do not take that as legal advice. That's legal advice. As I've... as a non-lawyer who knows nothing, you can trust me. <laughs> I have a French degree, and I say that that's perfectly legal. And that's how the law works. It's like the Napoleonic Code or whatever. <laughs> it's just whatever a French person tells you it is? Absolutely. That's how, that's how the legal system works. At least in Quebec. 
Uh, MI5 made extensive interviews of Burgess's acquaintances, which, as you can imagine, was a rather broad group of people, many of whom began pointing fingers at each other. Several close friends of Burgess were placed on watch lists and had their phones tapped. David Footman, in particular, was the target of a great deal of scrutiny, given his role in Burgess's introduction to the intelligence service. It is difficult even now to fully trust the accounts given by acquaintances of Burgess, such as those as Reese and Hewitt, due to their strong motivation to shift blame off themselves or because media sources were more than willing to pay for juicy details and gossip and they needed the money. I was going to say, how do we know that Jack Hewitt wasn't the greatest spy of all time? We'll, just, I, I suppose we'll we don't? never know. We do not know. Probably because not. it sounds like you only had to be minimally good at it to get yeah. away with it. You just had to be basically sober. As long as you didn't leave evidence of your treason on the coffee table when the police swung by. Don't just walk into the local courthouse, stand up on the judge's desk, pull down your shorts, and stop helicoptering your dick. Just just don't draw attention to yourself. You're just really up on the on the dick helicoptering. That's It's a vivid image. Oh it oh it's vivid. It's evocative. <laughs> It makes me feel something. <laughs> it it conveys deep emotions. Mostly. It signals that you're going through some stuff. <laughs> and you're not sure how to express yourself. It's it's almost a form of art. <laughs> it's like, oh hey hey there, George, you know, you, you seem you seem off lately. Oh, you know, I just I have I have something I need to tell you and then just <laughs> <laughs> Swirl your hips so hard you take off into the sky. Just you just achieve lift. Again, that is an image that no amount of drink or drug will ever scrub from my mind. <laughs> Only at my death will I be free. One friend who remained above suspicion, at least at first, was quiet historian Anthony Blunt. Blunt confessed in 1964 and returned for a non-prosecution agreement after being revealed by American Michael Strait, who he recruited back at Cambridge. His role was exposed to the public only in 1979, in a move by Margaret Thatcher to shame the non-political bureaucracy for the cover-up, after which Blunt largely retreated from public life. I'm glad we got a Margaret Thatcher reference in there somewhere. Gotta squeeze it in somewhere. Good old Maggie. Oh, Maggie. Ah, yeah, oh, Maggie. We lost you too soon. Did we, though? Yeah, we probably lost her well soon enough. <laughs> yeah, we, we could have... You could have gone earlier. We were good. <laughs> like, oof, we, I don't know if we needed seconds on that. We had our fun. Thanks, I'm full. <laughs> In 1953, Burgess wrote a detailed light but affectionate letter to his mother, instructing her to give his love to what friends of his he, she thought would still accept it. In 1954, MI5 closed the investigation. This was pro to prove somewhat premature, however, as in April of the same year, the defection of two Soviet intelligence officers, Evdokia and Vladimir Petrov, to Australia, confirmed that Burgess and McLean had been Soviet agents, recruited at Cambridge, and exfiltrated by Soviet intelligence. Another revelation, both men were alive, living in Kubyshev, an industrial city in modern-day Russia near the border of Kazakhstan. After this most public of revelations, the Foreign Office had little choice but to provide some account of what they knew. On September 19, 1954, they announced a white paper on Burgess and McLean prepared for this very eventuality. The official line was that McLean had come under suspicion shortly before skipping the country, rather than having been on a short list of suspects for weeks beforehand, and that authorities had taken immediate action in response to the disappearance, rather than taking several days to fully respond. 
It likewise heavily understated the degree of access McLean and Burgess had to sensitive intelligence and Burgess's involvement in MI5 as an agent runner. The paper quickly became known as the Whitewash Paper. Ooh. Ooh, that's, that's biting. That that's is snappy. harsh. But it's Oof. harsh in like a very British kind of way. Harsh but fair. In February 1956, an attempt to improve Anglo-Soviet relations and further so Anglo-American discord, Burgess and McLean gave a sh- an extremely short in-person interview, no more than five minutes, alongside a written statement to both Soviet and Western journalists, denying that they had ever been Soviet agents, claiming instead to have moved to the USSR to pursue better understanding between the Soviet Union and the West. Oh no, we weren't, we weren't spies, we just <laughs> moved here yeah. for the weather. Yeah, as one does. We just we just wanted to live under Stalin, and we just left in the middle of the night for shits and giggles, leaving our wife and or Jack Hewitt behind. You know, we're never coming back, but that's unrelated. Due to its poor drafting and odd language, the British ambassador in the USSR assessed that the statement was unlikely to have been written by either Burgess or McLean. After the meeting, Burgess followed Sidney Wayland, the writer correspondent, and requested that he convey a message to Burgess's mother. It is after this meeting that Burgess began to reconnect with past associates in Britain, and Burgess and McLean began to make a few few public comments, including writing articles denouncing American foreign policy. Okay. Seems like he could have just stayed in Britain and written some angry letters to the editor. But you know. This seems a little unnecessary, disappearing into the night and showing up alive several years later. In July 1956, Burgess's ailing mother spent a month at the sanitarium in Sochi, Russia, to see her son. Shortly thereafter, Tom Dryberg arrived in Moscow for a two-week work visit with Burgess to inform a biography who is writing about Burgess with Burgess's agreement. Much of the public information available about Burgess's life in Moscow came from Dryberg's biography, which was critically panned but a great financial success. I like that this guy is supposed to be in hiding. He's like one of the most wanted people on the planet. And you could just kind of look him up in the phone book and visit him in Russia. Tons of people when they were visiting Russia, part of the fun was just getting accosted by uh, Burgess looking for Westerners to hang out with because he hated it there. Dryberg himself was caught in a KGB sting of a notable hotspot for men cruising for homosexual encounters and became a Soviet informant in response to the threat of blackmail. When Burgess and McLean first arrived in the USSR, they were kept under house arrest in Kubishev and interrogated extensively, trust not being a particular Soviet virtue. Burgess portrayed this mm. to Dryberg as a period of around six months, but it's hard to know exactly how much to trust that account, particularly as he and McLean remained in Kubishev at least until 1954. The two may have been oh. released after six months or only after the death of Stalin. At some point during his time at Kubishev, Burgess lost a front tooth, which was replaced with stainless steel. Oh, you know, as you, sometimes you're just having a friendly conversation among friends, and your tooth falls out. It yeah. Just, shit happens. Shit you know? happens. Perfectly normal. Burgess resented his treatment by the KGB and not being allowed to return to Britain, as he was confident in his ability to hold up to MI5 scrutiny. From later comments, it's possible that he never intended to go to Russia at all, but was forced. But it's unclear how or why. As of 1956, Burgess had recreated his London flat in a Soviet skyscraper in Moscow and spent much of his time in a country house not far outside the city, which where he largely passed the time solitarily, reading English literature and drinking Georgian wine. McLean learned Russia and took up a position at, the, at a linguistic institute, but Burgess never quite picked up more than the most basic Russian. 
Indeed, Burgess appears to have wrapped himself up in what pieces of Britain he could still have and lived as if he were still there, primarily reading British books, newspapers, and magazines. So he spent his whole life, from college onward, desperately trying to destroy his home country and make it more like Russia, only to get to Russia and realize he wanted to make it as much like Britain as he possibly could. Like, that's actually kind of the tragedy of Guy Burgess, is he was so a member of his own society. Everything he loved, everything he wanted, he hated ever being outside of Britain. And the one thing he needed to not have that all taken away was just to do nothing. He was born with everything he ever wanted. All he ever wanted to do was just sit around, read books, and have Jack Hewitt make him supper. It's just incredible. He's he's the bougiest piece of shit alive. And he goes out of his way to be a communist? To an extent, it makes you ask if like he just wanted to be important. And that it didn't really matter how. Right, like at what point when you're you know, lounging on your chaise lounge eating bonbons, you decide to fight for the cause of the worthy proletariat. (laughs) With no family and few friends in the USSR, Burgess was relatively isolated outside of his continued correspondent with his remaining friends in Britain, and often went out of his way to socialize with visiting Westerners. One notable exception was his frequent visits to the Orthodox Novodevichy convent, despite his pointed long-light atheism. He's just so lonely... Even even nuns. Even Russian nuns, just to break the monotony. Because <laughs> they're the most fun kind. Mm. All the sense of humor of a nun, <laughs> but Russian. Burgess ate relatively little, preferring to smoke and drink. He wore at all times an old Eton tie. In a 1959 interview with the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, Burgess was asked, What is life like? which he answered after a long silence, my life ended when I left London. It's one, I'm glad we got the Canadian angle in there. Oh, the CBC's coming in clutch. (laughs) I'm just picturing, like, you know how Angus Young of ACDC just wears a little schoolboy uniform (laughs) on stage? I'm just picturing a drunk child wandering around Russia in a little Eton uniform. Just a grown man stuffed into a schoolboy's set of shorts. Looking morosely off into the distance as, like, Russian hymns play in the background. Trying to chain-smoke himself to death. (laughs) Burgess was allowed to move largely freely, but his minders kept him on a tight leash. His rooms were heavily bugged, and he wasn't permitted to leave his apartment until receiving a call around 4pm every day. He did nonetheless have one notable live-in lover in the USSR, Tolya Shishekov, a young electrician who likewise kept tabs on Burgess for Soviet authorities. So you have a government-mandated boyfriend in in Russia. <laughs> From each according to his ability, to each according to his needs. <laughs> I don't think that applies to anal sex. <laughs> Do- doesn't it? Doesn't it, Janelle? <laughs> I don't pretend to understand Russia, but I feel confident that that's not what they meant. <laughs> Ask Lenin. <laughs> I'll wait. 
I mean, he's still pickled in a jar somewhere. I'll, I'll book a flight and get back to you. Despite the illegality of homosexuality, Burgess continued regularly, regularly picking up men wherever he went, with an ease that frankly impressed the KGB agents assigned to guard him. Like, ju- they're just impressed. <laughs> yeah, you're in a country where homosexuality is both illegal and socially frowned upon, but your minders are like, this man is a stud. Like, they can't even be <laughs> mad at you. Oh, yeah. Like, incidentally, those those guards did not enjoy their detail, as Burgess was aggressive, provocative, and unpredictable. <laughs> God, no. You're you're an uptight fucking Russian KGB agent. Yeah. And you're, you're yeah. guarding a man who's like an angry ferret trapped underneath a couch. <laughs> the only time you laugh is when you're getting ready to waterboard someone. And you're just stuck following this drunk asshole around as he just pulls ass from every corner of <laughs> Moscow. <laughs> you're just following him to the fucking lube store. A lot of repetitive gay porn. This is your entire day. Unintentional forced voyeurism. You did like 12 years of training in some terrifying Siberian death camp. Yeah. You can take a man apart like he's a gun and put him back together. You can kill with your thumbnail alone. And your your main goal in life is to make sure that Guy Burgess never runs out of condoms. <laughs> Burgess worked for the Foreign Languages Publishing House, recommending works for translation, and likewise for the Information Committee of the USSR Foreign Ministry. He likewise acted as a policy analyst on Britain for Russian intelligence and assisted in the counterfeiting of British and American documents, as well as editing drafts of Soviet propaganda and disinformation into more natural-sounding English making him perhaps one of the most useful British defectors in the USSR. It's kind of what he always wanted to be doing, just lying around reading British literature and writing communist propaganda. Unlike most other fugitives from justice, Burgess was classified as a non-resident British subject in late 1957, allowing him access to his financial assets in the UK and permitting British residents to send him money without violating the law themselves. The Mm. truth was, there was never enough evidence to charge him with anything, though Burgess certainly didn't know that and frequently petitioned to be allowed to return to visit his mother when she was too ill to travel. From 1959 onwards, Burgess's health rapidly declined exacerbated by years of poor diet and constant drinking and smoking. August 20th, 1963, he was admitted to the cardiac ward of the Botkin Hospital for Advanced Artiosclerosis. At 6 a.m. August 30th, Burgess died in his sleep of liver failure at the age of 52. The KGB cleared his apartment of all papers, including the manuscript of a memoir. His mother was too ill to attend the funeral, so his brother Nigel traveled to the USSR alone. The body was cremated, and the ashes returned to England to be interned in the family plot. Oh, I mean, when you said he was admitted to cardiology, I was like, no way this fucker dies of heart failure. <laughs> no, his liver saw that and was just like, not today. <laughs> this has been 30 years of abuse, and I'm taking my vengeance. <laughs> oh, this man hasn't lit a cigarette off of anything but another cigarette for 20 years. (laughs) He hasn't been sober since childhood. Like, the reason why he chews garlic the way he does is because he hasn't hasn't tasted anything that didn't taste of ashtray in years. Like, you could probably, you could probably jump a full plate of ashtrays, butts and all, into his spaghetti, and he'd compliment the chef. (laughs) My uncle smoked three packs a day from the age of 10 till his death at the age of 71 
and he used to make garlic mashed potatoes with whole cloves of garlic. He like, kind of had to bite into one to, to tell what he was eating. It's amazing he still had lungs, to be honest. He used to have to sleep in a lazy boy because he could no longer breathe while horizontal. <laughs> Healthy. Smoke, kids. Mm. He had a, his lungs had a healthy crackle. He used to go smoke in his car and the effort of inhaling would make him pass out so we'd go check if he was dead yet. <laughs> oh, come on, kids, so if, go check if your uncle's dead. Oh yeah, it was a good good stuff. So if Guy Burgess was going to die of heart failure, I was going about to be goddamn outraged. This this is the man who if he had lived 2 decades longer, probably would have drowned standing up and with his with with the fluid in his lungs. Like this is not I- this is not a healthy individual. <laughs> I'm surprised they even had to uh, embalm him. I assume it's just, you know. Mm. Like when they cremated him, did they have to stand back in case there was like blue shots of flame? <laughs> did they even have to really stoke the fire first? <laughs> He's just already pickled, so. Mm. Was, it, was it like, it must have been just like burning gasoline. <laughs> the whoosh. <laughs> <laughs> You know, you 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 close you close the oven and it just like it shoots like comes right off its hinges and shoot embeds in the wall. <laughs> you try to give him a Viking funeral and he burns for four days. <laughs> just down in the harbor, like it's like oh, wonderful. Like it's like it's the fucking Halifax explosion. <laughs> Truly wonderful. <laughs> and that ends. That ends our uh, discussion of the life of Guy Burgess. Finally returning out. home. Wow. That's he, he died doing something he hated for a country he felt no loyalty to. Yeah. What a, what a life. What a life. What a thought. I have been Jessica. And I have been Janelle. And we are fat, French, French and, and fabulous. fabulous. Up, and apparently it's fucking Austria. Huh.